Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. It's Thursday, January 25th, 2024 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Another great story in the Wall Street Journal, just like I started yesterday. But let me start it today. This is a fun one, one of those A-heads. I think if I point to excellent pieces of journalism, maybe you'll read them. And I'm helping protect democracy, right? All right. This one's about couples hiring birds of prey to be ring bearers at their weddings. Well, one of the couples is all decked out in maiden garb and knight in shining armor, regalia, so they're Renfair folk holding an eagle. And in that case, yeah, I give you no credit. It's just all part of the act. But a couple of the other couples, including some of the pictures of these shocked brides as a falcon descends upon the best man, are really priceless. The article talks about a guy named Kevin who wanted to surprise his bird-loving wife during their wedding ceremony. So they do the whole thing and the best man pretends to forget the ring and thus annoying the about-to-be wife. And oh no, he pulls out a glove and a falcon comes with the ring. Now, what gets a falcon to do that? What's the falcon's motivation? Well, the falconer, Daniel, says that he baits the bearer of the glove with day-old chicken legs as the treats for his birds. It's like a Big Mac, the falconer says. It's not really good for them, but they love it. So this bird lover is both enjoying the flight of a bird and killing a bird, or at least breaking it. I'm going to say killing a baby bird in the process. But you should know this is just nature and birds of prey do prey. But wait a minute, it's also not really good for him. So it's killing a bird and perhaps long-term adding to another bird's cholesterol. One thing I didn't like, and this wasn't the fault of the article, just the fault of the choices of one of the falconers, this uh, one wedding service prices their falcons at $1,200, and you can get a Eurasian eagle owl named Ollie or Marvin, or a falcon named Marty. What kind of name for a falcon is Marty? Falcons should be named Octavian or Hieronymus, something regal, not Marty. Marty just over there munching on chicken legs that are bad for him. It was this or go to the monster truck rally. You know how Marty likes his funnel cake and chick legs. Oh, you are a true friend. Hopefully, one day we can return to society. But until that day, you will be the Falcon and I will remain the Falconer. <laughs> On the show today, well... I th- it's a little bit of a pattern. I say something nice about the Wall Street Journal. I say something bad about the LA Times. Just have a lot more to say about the LA Times. It's about a specific journalist who has been branded as a misinformation specialist. That does seem to be what he's specializing in, 
but on which side? But first, because of media narratives and our brains need to impose order and structure on everything, it's easy to get caught up in thinking that larger forces than us are in control and we can't really affect the future. Not really, says my guest. He's Brian Class, a fellow of comparative politics at the London School of Economics, and he's the author of the just-released book, Fluke, Chance, Chaos, and Why Everything We Do Matters. Brian Class up next. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks, it's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity, using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. So the two great fallacies that I've found in my life that beset all of us, one is the interpersonal and one is more global. The biggest fallacy, I think, is we always assume that other people act and have the same motivations as we do. But when thinking about how the world works, there is the historical fallacy, which is to say, look at the things that happen and let us assume, well, they were always fated to happen. But that's just not the case. The world we're living in, the reality we inhabit, is at best a range of outcomes, and it could very well be the fact, it's hard to disprove, that this current reality or even the morsels of reality, how you define your life, are but flukes. Fluke is the name of a new book by Brian Kloss. He is, um, well, let's just say he's a not a PhD over in England, they call it a doctor of philosophy, who's a professor of global politics at the University of College in London. And he has written about corruption and he writes about the threats of autocracy. And now he's taken a little bit of a side path by saying, essentially, you know, it all could be kind of random. Brian Claus, welcome to The Gist. Thanks for having me on the show. So I'm going to get into why I think you wrote the book. But first, let's lay the predicate. And let's do it by talking about, I don't know if you like to talk about this or not, but say, let's take the current state of American politics, right? So often we think, well, here's why we're this way, and it was because of 
events A, B that inexorably led to C. But you're saying not the case. Yeah, I think that, you know, whenever I go on TV to talk about U.S. politics, I'm, I'm, I'm very aware that there's something I can't say, which is maybe this was just sort of a random accident or some people who are winging it made some decisions in the moment and this has led to this outcome or I don't know. Right. Like those are all things that are like heresy to say. Could be. <laughs> Brian, you're an expert. What'll happen next? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and it's but this is the this is the nature of reality, right? One of the things that I do as a political scientist is I try to condense this extremely messy reality of, you know, eight billion different people interacting in these super complex systems into like, you know, a, a model that has like six big variables to explain change. And I've always been really unhappy with that because every time that I've looked at individual cases, that's not how the world works, right? And so, you know, the opening the opening story of the book I think illustrates this really well, which is it's about the uh, atomic bomb, right? And it starts with this vacation that this couple takes in 1926 to go to Kyoto, Japan. They fall in love with the city, and then 19 years later, the husband in the couple is America's Secretary of War, Henry Stimson, and they choose to bomb Kyoto. The generals yeah. pick it as the top choice. Stimson doesn't want to see this place that he went on a vacation to blown up. So he goes to Truman twice and gets it taken off the list. And so the bomb gets dropped on Hiroshima instead. And the second bomb was supposed to go to Kokura, but there was briefly cloud cover that, you know, blanketed Kokura. So they dropped the bomb on Nagasaki. So, you know, when you try to explain why things happen, you're not going to put vacation histories of U.S. officials and cloud cover as top reasons for atomic bomb selection, you know, uh, targets. But that was what happened, right? And I think when you look back at history, there's a neat and tidy line we always draw. This is what history books do. They give us this narrative of like, oh, and then of course... But actually, when you dial into the events, I mean, it's a lot of contingency where, where small decisions in critical moments really made a big difference. Yes. So I wrote this book or edited this book called Upon Further Review. I'm showing it to you now. And the very it's about what ifs. And the very first sentence in my introduction is America exists because the sky was foggy. And it was about the Battle of Long Island in August 1776 and cloud cover unusually intense cloud cover allowed George Washington to escape, fight another day, and win the revolution. And so I totally subscribe to everything you're saying. And yet, in the moment, as we're thinking about, say, how to win a battle, I wouldn't say, well, let's rely on cloud cover. And as we're thinking about how to vote against or mitigate against the effects of the creeping autocracy of Donald Trump, I wouldn't say, eh, Things will, things might work out differently or these signs of what he said about his intentions to be a dictator on day one. Maybe it won't be. What do I do with that? Yeah, so I think there's two, I think there's two things. One is that, yes, of course, you should you should try as hard as you can to basically learn from the past and avoid future catastrophe. Right. I mean, that's basically the story of humanity. Yeah. But but I think at the same time, when we have reflected back at us, this over confident hubris of the certainty of models, right? And our economy runs on models, our politics runs on models. So much of our life is is running on models in which past patterns are viewed as predictive of the future. What, ha what happens when you internalize that lesson and that worldview is you start to optimize to the absolute limit because you think you're in control, right? So you set systems up that are extremely non-resilient, and by contrast, if you accept that there is this level of randomness and uncertainty that sways outcomes, you're going to focus more on resilience and slightly less on optimization. And so I think one of the things that has happened in modern society is we've made so social systems 
you know, I have a line in, in Fluke where I say we've basically made this upside down world where Starbucks will never change, but rivers will dry up and democracies will collapse. And that's because we have set up a world in which we have clockwork systems in our sort of local environment, our day to day existence, where we feel very in charge and very in control. And then all these things are just walloping us all the time of unexpected events. And so it's not to say like you don't try to prevent things, right? You, it's not like we're powerless. It's instead to say there's a healthy dose of uncertainty. And that uncertainty is really, really useful when you're trying to navigate the moments that could pivot on the small flukes. But isn't part of that because Starbucks is a closed system that's incentivized to towards perfection and say... American democracy was set up in 1787 and they didn't know what the hell they were doing. And there's an explanation that, oh, they tried to they tried to give the states power because of and then we in the present, I think, lay our anxieties on it and say things like they're trying to mitigate the power of uh, the urban dweller or whatever it was. But it's kind of just random choices and they thought they were doing the best they could. But here we are living in that very <laughs> non a uh, port, I, I almost said port over because I'm thinking about Starbucks, that very non, you know, finely detailed oriented, but extremely consequential consequence of just guys trying their best in 1787 who didn't even think there'd be political parties, which are probably the most salient feature of our political system. Yeah, so I, I like what you said about the the closed and open system with Starbucks, right? Because like when you think about things like chaos theory, and, and and in Fluke I talk about some of these ideas from evolutionary biology and from chaos theory and physics and so on. Closed systems like sports, for example, are far less subject to this because the rules are really strict. There's actually you know repeat games. There's we can sort of expect that one team is going to win. It's not like you know you've got a baseball game and all of a sudden the Buffalo Bills are going to win somehow. Right. So like there's there's things where we can control that. The real world of politics is very different. Social systems are very different, and this is where chaos theory I think comes in. And you're right. I mean I think when I talk about Trump, for example, and I write about him briefly in the book, and I, I cut this other pit bit, but I because it's not guaranteed, but I think it's it's worth thinking about. When you think about Trump's origin story in the 2016 race, there are a lot of people around him who have speculated that he decided to run for president after Obama told this joke at the White House Correspondence right. Center in 2011. Right? That was in your Atlantic essay, but not yes. in the book. Yeah, exactly. And I, you know, I don't know whether this is certainly true or not, but it's totally plausible. This is the way that the world actually works, right? Because we're personalities, we're not robots. So it's totally plausible that Trump got really angry, and even if it didn't cause him to run for for president, it certainly was part of the vendetta story about how a lot of his presidency was tied to undoing the Obama administration's achievements, right? Now, I also think, and this is something that is in the book, that there are things that have long-term consequences that we don't think about. So one of the things that's really amazing, and I, I have this, it's the only graphic in, in Fluke, is that there is a there was an ancient inland sea in the United States around the time of the dinosaurs, and it created this uh, very, very fertile soil from phytoplankton at the coastline. And that was basically where Alabama, Mississippi, and Georgia are today. Now, if you look at the county level election results from 2020's election, you will see the ancient inland sea in election results, the coastline, exactly the same place, because it's where enslaved people were brought for plantations and then ended up settling. And that's the black population vote in Georgia that carries 
this very narrow margin for Joe Biden and also gives the Senate to the Democrats, right? So what I'm not saying is that there's something where we can necessarily, you know, there, there are some certainly some lessons about how people should live their, 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 their lives um, based on these ideas. There's some stuff we can't control. I think what's more important is to recognize that the simplified version of reality that is reflected back at us whenever a pundit tells us why something's happen, happened, whenever a historian is giving us a clean narrative of why things happen, all of those things are misleading. Yes. And so you make bad decisions based on those lies. And I think it's something where it's really, really important to grapple with how interconnected and unforeseeable um, some of our actions are in politics, economics, and in our own lives as well. Right. The future isn't r random, but it's more randomized than both the pundits, but also our natural inclinations as human beings who've evolved to this point. It's more randomized than we maybe know. And as someone who enjoys sports statistics, I grasp this pretty easily when they talk about how a batter is going to fare next year. The good statistic will say, here's a range of outcomes. And the median 50% says he'll bat between, you know, 290 and 312, but then here's the outliers. And so we understand. But when we live, especially in a political system where there aren't that many trials and there's just one election every few years and the snow in Iowa can have a great effect or anything else, it is a lot more randomized. And so therefore, I don't know, how other than how it affects our cognition, how should it affect our attitudes and behaviors? Like, we shouldn't stay home from voting and we should still worry about, uh, okay, maybe we don't think it'll, it's a dead certainty that all these bad things will happen, but we should intuit that it's more bad than good. So that shouldn't affect us much more than if we thought it's definitely going to happen, I think, right? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few things, right? So when it comes to social systems, this is where building and resilience is so important. And, and pretty much everything that exists in modern society is the opposite of this. It's, it's tethered towards optimization. Okay. Right. It's we're told must be more and more efficient, must be more and more optimized. The problem is when you set up a hyper optimized system, a tiny thing can derail it. Right. And so, like the Suez Canal example is one of my favorite ones, where you have this gust of wind twisting one boat and it causes fifty four billion dollars in damage. Like that wasn't possible thirty years ago because the system was not so brittle that one boat could cause you know zero point four percent of global GDP to get wiped out. Now, I also think it's important to think about how we can you know, basically uh, plan in our own lives for this by doing a bit more experimentation. I mean, this is the other thing that I think is important to think about, which is that, you know, when you have the delusion of control based on these very, you know, baseball style models, which actually are, you know, closed systems that are more predictable, as you say, then what you will do is you will experiment less, right? Because there's no reason to, you already know the answer to these solutions. And there's a great study in, uh, that, that I mentioned in the book, which talks about how there was a tube strike in London, right? The subway shuts down because the drivers go on strike. And the economists look, looked at anonymous uh, cell phone data. And they found that like 5% of people actually stuck with the new pathway to work, the new commute that they came up with because they were forced to experiment. And there's so much from evolution, from all sorts of social problems where experimentation drives us forward. If you believe you already know and can control the world, then you will not experiment, right? Now, I think when it comes to something like Trump, yeah, I mean, there's things where 
of course, we should just make our best shot, right? I mean, this is the other thing that I think is important is there's a difference between the kinds of questions that we don't need to answer. Like there's not a reason why economists have to forecast the GDP growth in Malawi in 2035. There is a reason why we have to think about like what to do about Donald Trump in 2024. And so, you know, making your best shot based on a flawed model, as long as you recognize it's flawed, is what you do when you have to make decisions. Some of the things we do with forecasting, I think, are hubristic and unnecessary. Um, you know, and, and just finally, the, the last point, I, you know, without going fully down the, the rabbit hole of, of COVID origins, I mean, one of the things that I think is important to think about is whatever the origin story of that virus was, it is absolutely the case that there have been lab leaks in the past, and those labs are not secured, right? And this is one of the things that I think is a is a perfect illustration of the point I'm making, which is that, you know, okay, what do we do about the next pandemic? We're not thinking about that anymore. We've moved on, right? And this is how a lot of social systems operate. They don't devote the budgets to anticipating problems that are produced by uh, uncertainty and flukes. Yeah. And then there's there's a great example of the vaccines that they mandated during the Ford administration, which weren't necessary. And that convinced us because we had the sample size of one that convinced us to a large degree, like, let's not do a mass vaccination when the red light signals are flashing. And that's a bad takeaway, too. We take away from the thing that actually happened, but that thing might have just been a 20% chance, or it might have been an 80% chance, but then a 20% chance will happen. So that's the other bad thing about fighting the last war. It's not necessarily that the next war won't exactly follow those contours. It's that let's also recognize that the last war wasn't fated to happen. It was just part of a range of outcomes. Yeah, this this is where you know I I, I do have a, a slight critique of, of of you know sort of Nate Silver style thinking in 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 the book because this is the kind of stuff where you have unfalsifiable claims like you know you have something where it says like there's a seventy eight percent chance that someone will win an election. I mean, any time that you have a non one hundred percent chance, you can always hide behind the uncertainty. You say, okay, well it was it was one of those weird outcomes, right? So there's problems with how scientific I think some of us treat yeah. forecasting that's probabilistic. I don't th- I, th- I don't think Nate would disagree with you, by the way. <laughs> Specifically, Nate, you know, there are people who said it was a ninety nine percent chance and they could hide behind the one. Nate would say, I had her at I had her at seventy, you know, thirty percent chances happen all the time. Yeah, yeah, no, you're you're right about that, and he said that right after the election. I mean, what what I'm saying is that I think there's some stuff where you see a forecast for a probabilistic, you know, range of outcomes, and then a lot of people who read this who don't have the background in statistics think, oh, there's some scientific model that's got this engine of secret, you know, knowledge that we're not. Uh, privy to. And what it basically is, is a series of polling average simulations and assumptions built into uh, a model, right? Yeah. And I think when you have that understanding, you say, okay, there's a bit more uncertainty and we can't really falsify it and so on. I think your point about fighting the last battle is really important because you know we only have one earth. And so, so much of the lessons that we learn from history are derived from things that could have been otherwise. They might have pivoted slightly differently, uh, but for one decision, but for a cloud, you know, there's, as you say, and so if you overlearn the lesson of something that was an accidental and very unusual outcome, you'll make mistakes. And so, you know, I think this is something where, you know, this this problem is not new. I mean, you know, Hume and so on, these philosophers of, of history have, have dealt with this question of how can we be sure that what happened in the past will also happen in the future? I think there's a lot of stuff in modern society that completely runs on that assumption in a very dangerously unquestion, uh, unquestioning way. And I think that's the, the the thing that I'm warning about. Yeah. And you're saying because we're optimizing uh, for all our systems, 
rather than rather than just understanding that a whole bunch of things that can happen so let's build a system that fails well we're saying okay this is going to happen so let's build a supply chain that absolutely is contingent on the fact that we will never have huge interruptions oops i can't believe that happened well you should have because black swan events happen all the time yeah, and I think I think basically we've engineered a world in which black swans are going to happen as a necessary outcome of the way the system works, right? So there's this idea in physics called the sand pile model, which is very intuitive, where it basically says, look, you, you, you add a grain of sand to a pile over and over and over. Eventually, one grain of sand can cause an avalanche. If you make the sand pile a little smaller, then each grain of sand is not going to cause an avalanche, right? And the example that I, I talk about briefly is, is there's a, a system in Latin America, an energy electricity system, where they basically decided to decouple parts from the overall grid, right? Yeah. And it meant that it was like 5% more expensive and like 5% more inefficient. But then when there was a blackout, it only affected this tiny part of the country and it saved so much money in avoided economic damage, right? And I think that's the kind of stuff, I'm not saying, oh, let's just like forget about efficiency or optimization. I'm saying, I think that we need to think carefully about the systems we design, learn the lesson that unexpected unexpected events are becoming very, very common by design, in my opinion. And therefore, we need to dial back this sort of holy grail of efficiency and, and, and instead embrace resilience a bit more. Yeah. Systems that fail well are really good, but I don't know that people make money on systems that fail well, except That's in cases <laughs> where the downside of failing horribly, like a plane falling out of the sky, is pretty apparent. But for most things, like your Uber app, uh, that's not built into it. And then if your Uber app fails and there are no other, I'm just taking something that seems to be low stakes, but if your app that we all rely on fails and that the old way of actually being able to hail a human being is out of service, then you're not going to be able to get to your next appointment, for instance. Yeah, you know, one of the examples that I, I like to talk about is how we, we we tend to audit failures. So you're right about a plane flying out of the sky. My, my favorite example of this is the Challenger explosion, mm -hmm. because the Challenger explosion had exactly the same dynamics in several of the previous launches. And the reason it didn't blow up was because it wasn't cold enough for the O-ring to fail. Yes. So what happened was when it blew up, then they audited the decision and they said, oh, well, you know, we made a mistake here. But you, you know, you don't audit successes. And this is a huge mistake because if there's contingent outcomes where things could go through a range of possibilities, you should be auditing decision-making even when things turn out really, really well, right? And this is, this is one of the ideas I think that's important when you think about interconnectedness and chaos theory and all these sorts of things is that sometimes really excellent outcomes can come from terrible decision-making. And you then learn the lesson, oh, this is what we should have done all along because it turned out well. And by, you know, by contrast, when things go really badly, we say, oh, we made a mistake. That doesn't always follow. And I think when you have a range of distributions where sometimes the 1% outcome happens, you might have made a very stupid decision and just got extremely lucky. And that is Brian Kloss. We were discussing his new book, Fluke, Chance, Chaos, and Why Everything We Do Matters. Tomorrow, we will return with part two of our conversation. And Brian will further the space shuttle analogy. We'll talk convergence and contingency, two interesting concepts to know the difference between, and complexity versus being complicated. Also, the role of his border colleague, Zorro, in all this. Tune in tomorrow for more Brian Kloss. And now the spiel. 
Adam Elmerich reports for the LA Times, specializes in corruption stories. You'll see stories of his out of Anaheim City Hall. He did a bunch of reporting on cannabis legalization. He took to Twitter a few months ago, right after the attacks on Israel of October 7th, to rebut what he claimed was disinformation. One claim, he said, being put forth without documentation was of Israeli babies beheaded on October 7th. President Biden even repeated this claim, and Elmerich was right. There was no thorough documentation of this. Some reporters said they saw it. Some officials named an unnamed said it happened. But it doesn't seem to have been, I would say, thoroughly reported. And news reporters, and certainly the president of the United States, shouldn't have been spreading that piece of information, or in this case, misinformation. There was some sentiment at the time that went, okay, okay, so a baby wasn't beheaded. A baby was just shot and burnt. I, Mike Pesca, personally saw the photos and heard testimony from the Israeli morgue workers who tended to mutilated bodies of infants and toddlers, but no, not beheaded, though I read a report in Newsweek uh, from someone who said she worked on the bodies and said she saw that. But in general, if you want to call this misinformation, the claims did get ahead of the information that we could document. It's wrong to put it out there to that degree. But there were also some assertions about the motives behind why this information was being put out there, that it was purposefully used to justify the imminent war against Hamas. And I remember at the time, maybe you heard my spiel talking about this, where I said, it doesn't make sense to guess at the motive. You don't need to guess at the motive. It's quite plausible that an aggrieved, horrified people who did see mutilated bodies and saw beheaded adults, I personally saw the GoPro footage of Hamas beheading adults that's out there, that they conflated the horrors in their mind and weren't thinking straight and came up with stories of beheaded babies. Or the mutilated bodies of babies were something close to beheaded. Or some horrible thing happened, babies were killed, and someone, for honest reasons, understandable reasons, got it wrong. But I'm not here today to revisit this, to talk about beheaded babies here to talk about the rape that was said to have not happened, but now has been amply documented on October 7th. The sexual assault of Israeli women did happen, and it was not the case that there was only speculation that it happened, and then the speculation turned out to have randomly been right. By October 8th, and certainly the 9th and 10th, there were reports everywhere, if you look for them, of Israelis testifying to the rapes they witnessed. There was footage of women being dragged away by Hamas with blood on their pants. Adam Elmerich, as with the babies, however, took to Twitter to chastise and rebut anyone who made claims of rape, accurate claims of rape, as it turned out, and as was, and this is the this is key to my point, and as was being documented at the time that Elmerich was saying there were no credible reports of rape. Elmerich tweeted in the days after the October 7th assault when reports of rape had surfaced, quote, just take the Hamas quote-unquote rape claim. There's no evidence to support it whatsoever. My own paper had to issue a correction. Indeed, that's true. The LA Times did. There was this phrase in an op-ed. Of course Hamas wants to send monsters to slaughter parents in front of their children or children in front of their parents, rape women. 
abduct grandparents and parade them as trophies. It's the geopolitical equivalent of figuratively and possibly literally blaming rape victims for not being careful enough. Well, now it turns out literally, literally, not possibly, literally. And that was all being documented in the moment that Elmerich was rebutting it, which is why Jonah Goldberg, who wrote the op-ed, put pen to paper in that way in the first place. So great. The LA Times changed one mention of the word rape to assault. The phrase rape women became assault women, but they still included the possibly literally blaming rape victims for not being careful enough. I would not call this anything approaching some sort of journalistic moment of glory to water down an accurate word. Elmerich counts that as justifying his championing of accuracy because, this is clear, there was evidence of rape. He says there was no evidence of rape. There was evidence of rape. It abounded at the time that Elmerich was denying it. Not understanding what evidence is is pretty common, which is why whenever someone could plausibly argue something like, I've only seen weak evidence or I've seen no evidence that convinced me, that person will invariably reach for There is no evidence. There is no evidence whatsoever. But eyewitness accounts are evidence. Evidence is not proof. They're not synonyms. Evidence is evidence. You don't need a rape kit to have evidence. Otherwise, before rape kits were invented, you'd never have evidence of rape. Not understanding the distinction between evidence and proof is a failing that's worrisome in an investigative reporter, but it's borderline criminal in a so-called misinformation expert. And that's what Elmerich was billed as. He had a half-right, half-very-wrong chastisement of reports coming out of Israel. A few weeks later, he gave a talk at the University of California at Long Beach titled Media Misinformation and the Fog of War in Gaza. Last month, he was featured as an expert on a Scientific America show called Science Quickly, How Misinformation Spreads Through Conflict. I kept trying to warn my colleagues vet this stuff. Don't take it at face value. Question him on it. Press him for the evidence. You know, don't just rebroadcast this claim without any skepticism, without without saying that this has been vetted, because this is going to have real dire consequences. And unfortunately, you know, unfortunately, a lot of media did not heed that warning and had to uh, walk back claims, walk back the beheaded baby's claim. Elmerich was being quoted on that podcast for Scientific American about the baby's claim, but it totally glossed over or memory hold or necessarily elided or else they would discredit Elmerich and the program itself. Elided was the fact that he spent a lot of time, which was his free time as a self-appointed vetter of so-called Israeli propaganda, he spent that time incorrectly chastising accurate reports of rape. When users of Twitter pointed out to Elmerich that there were eyewitness accounts of women being raped at the Nova Music Festival, he criticized the witnesses, saying that the witness, quote, expressed genocidal vengeance. The scolding and skepticism over the rape claims played out on Twitter on October 11th. On October 10th, the PBS NewsHour aired a report quoting an eyewitness from the music festival, Roz Cohen. Uh, people from uh, Gaza raped uh, 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 girls, and uh, after they raped them, they uh, uh, killed them and uh, murdered them with knives, or uh, or the opposite, kill. And after this rape, they, they did that 
they laugh. They always laugh. It's I can't uh, can't forget how they laugh on on the in this situation. Raz Cohen with this eyewitness account, and he wasn't the only one saying he witnessed rape. In a New York Times account published at the end of December titled Screams Without Words, How Hamas Weaponized Sexual Violence on October 7th, the paper included Cohen's recollections, the account of another witness next to him, and the accounts of four members of the emergency medical technician team to arrive at the rave site. They all discovered victims, female victims, laying exactly as Cohen described things. Adam Elmerick was denying that there were people like Cohen making this claim, and when confronted with the fact that the accounts were out there, Elmerick denigrated the witness. To this day, Roz Cohen is, he's in the middle of this vortex. He's the subject of ridicule to the extremely anti-Israel American left. When his accounts were featured in the New York Times and on CNN, the YouTuber Max Blumenthal, who has half a million followers, tried every effort to poke holes in his story. In the interview you heard, he was describing what he saw. But at other points and in other interviews, he says things like, I couldn't watch. I think there are dozens of plausible ways to square the two sentiments, him giving an eyewitness account, but also saying that he looked away or couldn't watch. But the Blumenthal and lots of other people, Cohen's lying. They don't really take up the dozens and dozens of other witnesses who saw the rapes occurring. There is some amount of misinformation at play here. I would earnestly like to know who Adam Elmerick thinks is engaging in it. Elmerick, whose mother is an Israeli Jew and father is a Palestinian Arab, he's been vocal and long before October 7th about his views on Israel being an apartheid state. He was among a group of L.A. Times reporters who publicly criticized Israel in 2021, tweeting, For decades, the reporting has obscured Israel's military occupation and system of apartheid. He criticized the AP for upholding its standards and not allowing an anti-Israel activist to cover the news. And he chastised the media for their style guides, which don't refer to the territories as the country of Palestine. The website Electronic Intifada covered all of Elmerick's stances quite approvingly. As opinions, they're fine. I don't mind engaging with them at all. We could have a debate, and I think newsrooms should, about some of these issues. I disagree mostly with what he advocates, though the Palestine part, I think there are exceptions when you could use that. As public advocacy, while wearing the hat of a credible journalist, I do think him taking these public stances does hurt the overall credibility of his outlet, and maybe if we're being very grand about it, the believability of news in general. But here is my main point and my main concern. As an expert on misinformation, I think it's all outlandish. Adam Elmerich didn't earn calm, cool caution in the face of the unknown. What he really did was muddied the picture by injecting unwarranted doubt because, as his publicly known sentiments reveal, he picked a side a long time ago. I say, if you think Elmerich's some great writer or arguer, put him on the opinion page. Label his opinions as such. Don't put a red line through actual accuracies in this case, but don't hold him up as an expert on misinformation. Or you know what? Do. Because I think this is just another clarifying example of what the charge of misinformation has become. Just another tool in the propagandist's arsenal. 
That's it for today's show. Corey Wara produces The Gist. Joel Patterson's the senior producer. But when they're both together, they're known as the quaint mallards. Michelle Pesca is in charge of special projects for Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented alongside and in collaboration with AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu Peru Peru. Thanks for listening. <laughs>